Let's pray. Father, we thank you that it is with truth that we can sing out our stronger than darkness and new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. And God, that your mercy triumphs over judgment. And it's judgment that we deserve. And if life was fair, then it would be judgment that we would get. But you are merciful and gracious beyond what we can comprehend. And we thank you for that because in your mercy and grace, God, we have hope. And not just any hope, but a blessed hope that one day we will be with you in a way that now we would not be able to handle, but, it, it, but in face to face we will be with you, that we will look on your face, we will look on your goodness. That we won't have to come to a sanctuary. Because you will be our temple. And you have purposed and designed that that is where the church is going. And we praise you for that. And we ask that through your Spirit, that you would give us understanding into that reality. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Early in Emily's and my marriage, some friends loaned us season one of 24. And it changed our lives. We were instantly hooked to this real-time suspense action thriller television show built around the life of Jack Bauer, a counter-terrorist unit agent who's more akin to Batman than anything else. He's practically Batman without a mask and without the voice change. And thankfully, these friends had multiple seasons of 24 because we were really far behind at this point. And there came a point in our uh, Netflix hadn't been invented yet. That's a traumatic thought for some in this room, a life without Netflix. Netflix hadn't been invented yet, and, but before Netflix, there we were binge-watching. And we were so thankful they had all these DVDs that we could start flying through and getting caught up on all the events that are Jack Bauer and all his wondrous deeds And there comes a point in every season of 24 where you think, there's no hope. We are doomed as a civilization. Jack Bauer's going to die. I think one season he actually did and then got brought back. So he's better than Batman. All hope is lost. Why even write the rest of the season? But you keep watching and somehow it all comes together in the last three episodes of the season. And there was a point where we were watching season three on DVD and thinking, how is any of this going to work? And at that very moment on on the actual TV, there were commercials for what was currently going on in season four. 
And so there's this moment of realization and clarity where I could say, well, obviously he's going to get out of this and everything's going to be okay because they're advertising season four. And that, among other reasons, is why my wife doesn't like watching TV with me. I ruin everything. But it made these circumstances that we were watching seem trivial. Well, he's going to get out of this. in, In some ways, it deflated all the suspense We knew that it was going to end well, no matter how improbable it seemed. It's very easy to look at our culture and our world and wonder, how is the church going to fare? We're in a society that's increasingly more and more secular, increasingly looking down on the gospel and the idea that there is one way to heaven. And the idea that there's one Savior of the world. And we look at the the anger and the war and the potential for war that's in our world right now. And the persecution of the church that is becoming more and more of an intensifying issue. Seeming to blockade the Gospel from those who need it most. And And we wonder, what's going to happen with the spread and the growth of the gospel? It seems so improbable. But we we read the book of Revelation where we're going to be this morning. And there's the presence of every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every, in the Greek, every ethne is there praising God. And we're left to wonder, how does the gospel get into incredibly closed countries? This seems so improbable. To go there in the name of Jesus is almost to say, please throw me in prison and do terrible things to me. And to ask someone in one of these cultures to follow Christ is to ask them to be willing to die a gruesome fashion at a moment's notice, almost as if Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. We think, how could we ask someone to do what Jesus asked them to do? But we get to Revelation. And we see every ethne there. And we, and we read it with a realization that the Gospel does go out to the whole earth. But instead of deflating the suspense... It gives us motivation because we know the end. We know which team is victorious. The book of Revelation was written to record the vision that the Apostle John received while he was sentenced to more or less solitary confinement on the island of Patmos. Many believe that Revelation was written down around the year 95 or 96. At this point, Jerusalem had been wiped out. The temple was gone. That happened 20-some years before Revelation was sent out to the churches. Many of the apostles have been killed in an inglorious fashion. A lot of people thought Jesus would have returned by now. 
And it was starting to seem that they might not see the return of Christ within their lifetime. Life for the early church was was bleak. And God gives John the vision of revelation to send out to the churches to let them know this is how it ends. This is how it plays out. This revelation is the capstone of Scripture. Hundreds of Old Testament references that the Old Testament's pointing not only to Jesus on the cross, but Jesus reigning for eternity. And this new creation, this new heavens, and this new earth. Revelation tells them that even though victory seems completely improbable, and as though it won't happen at all, then Jesus literally comes riding in on a horse in Revelation. And He cuts down the enemy with the word of His mouth, with the the sharp double-edged sword from His mouth. There's a lot more that I could say and will say in different times in this message about reading the book of Revelation. But for now, know this, that in this apocalyptic epistle, John is given a look behind the veil of heaven and he sees things that he's trying his best to explain. And events that are very hard to fathom. And if you're taking out notes, write this down. That in the glimpse given by Revelation 21, the destiny of the church is seen. We're wrapping up this series on the church and, and uh, just a word here, the, the outline is based on Revelation 21, 1-4, but for m- much of today's message, we're really going to be in 21, 1, all the way through 22, verse 5, um, even though the outline is only on the four verses. In the glimpse given by Revelation 21, the destiny of the church is seen in newness. Revelation, in many ways, as I said, is the capstone of Scripture. It contains, I saw one author write, 550 Old Testament passages are either quoted or referred to in the book of Revelation. The book escalates in imagery. It escalates in violence. All the way up to the point of chapter 20, where Satan is bound, he's thrown into the abyss with the beast, with the false prophet, all the dead are judged, those whose names are in the Lamb book of life are brought into heaven, those whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life are thrown into the lake of fire. And death is swallowed up. And then we get to Revelation 21. All of this has transpired. And John says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband.
A new heaven and a new earth, for the first had passed away. This is, it's important to note, this is not a renovated heaven and earth. This isn't this old house, heaven edition. Where God comes in, switches out the plumbing, puts in some energy efficient light bulbs, slaps some new paint and siding on, they put out a few new flowers and be like, look, this old house is brand new. No, this is a new heaven and a new earth. Not renovated, new. In verse 5, of 21 it says he who is seated on the throne said behold i am making all things new also he said write this down these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end to the thirsty i give from the spring of water without payment and the one who conquers will have this heritage i will be his god and he will be my son So what is this new creation? The former things have gone. They're wiped out. Well, this new creation is a few things that we're going to touch on very briefly. There will be a lot of things very brief today. One, it's a fulfillment of Jesus' promise. Remember in the upper room, He's with the disciples in John 14. He says, I'm going, I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. This is the place. It's coming down. It's also abundant. Pull up Isaiah 55.1. I have it on the screen here. Come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. In verse 6 here of 21, he says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water without payment. There's going to be choice drink here, and it's all free. Also, let's, let's look ahead to, uh, in your Bibles, look at chapter 22, verse 2. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, so there's a river that's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. Growing up, we had an apple tree in our yard. And it was an apple tree, my... My dad really geeks out on gardening. He loves gardening. And so this apple tree wasn't just an ordinary apple tree. This was an apple tree that had been grafted. It grew five different varieties of apple. All I know is that they were all delicious, but some of them were golden delicious. But here was the trick. It only only produced apples every other year. And then when it did, it was too many apples. So every other summer, one of my chores became cleaning up rotten, half-eaten, sometimes bee-infested apples. And every other year, we had battles with birds and squirrels. And we had pie filling coming out our ears. 
And you can just go out and pick delicious apples of different colors. Well, here, this, this tree has 12 kinds of fruit. And they're always in season. There's, there's never a time where there's not fresh fruit. It's abundant. And the tree isn't only good for fruit. Look what else verse 2 says. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And let's think of only what's going on right now in our world. Think of only what's going on in 2017. And what would it take to heal the woes of our, na- of, of our world today? We think of ISIS. We think of the issues going on with North Korea. We think of all the, the AIDS epidemic. Think of all of those who are starving or, or don't have access to adequate water. We think of human trafficking. We think of continued racism and brutality. We think of the orphans and the widows and their distress today. And then you compound all of those issues throughout history and, and going ahead. Things are not getting better. And this tree, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And I read this, and this must be a gigantic tree. It's on both sides of the river. Everyone has access to it. Not only is this creation a fulfillment of Christ's promises, not only is it abundant, but it's also beautiful and full of splendor. In 21, so so John, here he sees Jerusalem coming down. Later in 21, he starts describing the new Jerusalem. And he says in verse 11, He says, verse 10, a great mountain, he was taken up to a great mountain, showed showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare, rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall. And then he goes on down into verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned in every kind of jewel. First was jasper, and then sapphire, then agate, and then fourth emerald, and fifth onyx, and sixth carnelian, and the seventh crystallite, and the eighth uh, beryl, and I'm probably not pronouncing these right, and the ninth topaz, and the tenth chrysoprase, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And, And he just keeps going on, and there's pearls. And sometimes I read Revelation, I'm like, I pity John. He had to describe this in a way that we can maybe understand. And, he's, and he says twice in here, he's, he's like, there's gold and there's jasper and both are, he's like, it's like jasper, but it's, it's clear as crystal. And it's, it's like gold, but it's, it's clear as crystal. And you get the feeling that John is sitting there trying to describe this. He's like, if I just say you wouldn't believe it if I told you, I don't think that's going to suffice. So I'm just going to tell him what I saw. And John, he, he, 
There's a sense in which he has no words for what he's seeing. But it's great. And then in John's image, he talks about that this new Jerusalem has a very distinct shape for a city. You know, if I were to say, draw on your page right now what Des Moines looks like, you'd draw something that's kind of amoeba-esque. But here, Jerusalem is a cube. It's an enormous cube. Each side, a little over 1,300 miles. I... I'm not great with math, but I did length times width times depth of a cube, right? This is over 2.6 billion cubic miles of city. But it's not just a city, is it? No, the city is so much more. Why would it be shaped like a cube? The only other structure I can think of in Scripture shaped like a cube is Solomon's temple. It was a cube. It was a gold cube. On the inside, at least. And here, Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, is coming down like the most glorious temple in the history of Israel, but way bigger, far surpassing anything we could imagine. With gold so pure, it's almost clear like crystal. And jasper so pure, it's like clear crystal. And all these other jewels. And you look back at the holy city in verse 2. It's coming down as a bride adorned for her husband. But before he gets to that, he says this new creation has no sea. John notices the lack of salt water. Growing up in the Midwest, if if, if I had seen this, if, if God had pulled one of us Midwest kids out to see this, we'd have left out the lack of the sea. Because we're not used to seeing one. The only sea we have is the amber waves of grain, right? It's the closest we come. But John, he says there's no sea. Why would there be no sea? There's no telling exactly, but, but it is interesting to look at what the sea was understood as in the first century and before. The sea, even to today, is full of mystery. We know more about outer space than we do the ocean. There's also a fear of being shipwrecked. There were no satellite phones. There was no sonar. There was no radar. Your only hope in a shipwreck was to float to something before you got eaten or drowned. Think of Paul being shipwrecked and adrift a night and a day. The sea also symbolized the grave. In Revelation 20, the sea gives up its dead and it symbolized judgment. You think of Jonah. For these things, danger, mystery, fear, and death and judgment, there's no longer any place for them in the new creation. And so the new Jerusalem, this cube, This temple, it comes down. It's adorned like a bride. And I, I would, I would hold that this is, you know, John in throughout Revelation. A lot of times he combines imagery. 
Because it's the only way to adequately describe it. And in, so in, in Revelation 4 and 5 in the temple, we have the Lion of Judah who looks like a lamb that's just been slain. And how can a lion look like a lamb that's just been slain? This is why people who draw pictures of Revelation obvious, you know, it typically end up confusing us more than helping us. And here we have a city and a bride. It's a city bride coming down in, in Revelation 19, verse 7. It says this, Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen, this bride that's adorned, this city coming down that's adorned like a bride, is the church coming down adorned. The fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The wedding has happened. And Revelation 21 is the happily ever after of that wedding. We're on to the celebration. As we look later in Revelation 21, there are two things noticeably missing here from a city of God and from a new creation. Two things that that John can't help but point out In verse 22 of 21, he says, I saw no temple in this city. I'm thinking, John, this is 2.6 billion cubic miles of city. You travel fast. There's no temple in this city. For its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. The city itself is the, the Holy of Holies. And God is the temple And the other thing is there's no need for a sun or a moon. They don't even exist. For the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. You have this city. All death is dealt away with. And the city is huge. And it has a wall. Why does the city need a wall? There's no one going to attack it. Well, there's a symbol, there's a symbol of, of security with that. But the gates are never closed. And there's no night. There's never fear. The gates are there for decoration and to welcome in the children of God. I don't imagine we'll be anxious to walk out of the gates. I think once I think we'll just be really happy to be in there. The temple and the sun are both replaced by Jesus. This glimpse of Revelation 21 of the destiny of church The church is seen in newness and it's also seen in God's covenant desire. God's covenant desire is fulfilled in the destiny of the church. Verse 3, now this is one of the rare times that God the Father speaks in Revelation. 
A lot of times we have angels doing the speaking. Bring forth the seals. Bring forth the trumpets. Bring forth the bowls. Pour them out. John, here's what's happening. John, stop worshiping me. It's usually the angels talking. Who is worthy to unseal these scrolls? John stopped crying, but here there's a loud voice from the throne. And it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. I hope this sounds familiar. This is a major cry throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. That I'll dwell with my covenant people. I'll be their God. They'll be my people. We'll walk together. The first time this is mentioned in these words, or close to these words, is Exodus 6-7. I will take you, this is, this is, you know, the people have just figured out, oh, now we have to make bricks without straw. The plagues haven't even started yet. God gives this word to Moses to take to the people. He says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from the under, under the burdens of the Egyptians. You'll be my people, I'll be your God. And, and this, this sentiment is, is repeated over and over again, not only through the Pentateuch, but then through the prophets. But it doesn't really start in, in Exodus 6. It starts in Genesis 17 when God told Abraham that his offspring would inherit this land and that he would be their God. But I think the desire goes further back. I think the desire goes back to what we first saw in the Garden of Eden. God made Adam and Eve. God brought the animals to Adam. They talked about the animals. We know after the fall, that Adam and Eve, what did they hear? They heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. They were familiar with the noise of God. In this new city, this is an Eden city. The garden has become a city and it has no traffic congestion. I know that because later it says there's no pain. But it is interesting, we can't address this passage without looking at who isn't there. Because right before Revelation 21, we see that all these people are thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. Verse 7 of 21, To the one who conquers, I'll have this heritage. I will be his God, he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the father... uh, the fatherless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire. Their portion will not be in the New Jerusalem. It is in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 27, nothing unclean will ever enter these gates, nor anyone who who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Even after the judgment, John is sending out warnings saying, No, Jesus! Come to Jesus! Have your name written in the book of life! 
Or you won't get to see these gates. You won't get to enter them. And this sounds restrictive. And in a way it is. In a way, it's not restrictive enough. You know, Matthew 7, Jesus is talking, He says, wide is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the path to the door that leads to life. Many will enter the road, the door leading to destruction, few will, will enter the door leading to life. But maybe, you know, we need to realize God is holy and any sin is intolerable to Him. And we read that list in verse 8, and I'm guessing all of us with one or two of those kind of go, oh, I've told some lies. And as we read that, and as we recognize that those of us who are in Christ, our names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, we realize that what we deserve is not the Lamb's Book of Life, but that's because of God's grace and mercy. And we also look back at Revelation and realize every ethne is in here. It's restrictive and it's generous. Heaven is going to be incredibly diverse and I can't wait. And what will we be doing? Look at 20, 22, 3-5. No longer will there be uh, anything accursed but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him and they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more nor will there be any need for light or the sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. We will worship God and we will reign with Him and we will experience the peace of His reign. The final gl- part of this glimpse into Revelation 21, we see that the church's destiny is in newness, it's in God's covenant desire, and it's in God's fatherly healing. Verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death will be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Revelation is a hard book to read. Not just because it's difficult to understand in its apocalyptic nature, but because of what happens in Revelation. It is a hard book to read. I've been, over the the last year, I've been studying Revelation more than I typically have. And in one of my readings of it, I I noticed one verse 7. Behold, He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see Him. And I'm thinking, great! Even those who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. And it's so easy to think of all the ethne worshiping. But all the ethne are judged as well. Heaven isn't the only place with diversity. Hell will also have diversity. And you look just at what the saints go through in Revelation. In Revelation 6, 9-11, there's this image of the martyred saints underneath the altar of God saying, God, when will you avenge our blood? And Jesus says, come out. He puts them in white robes and He says, you rest and I'm getting ready to take care of this. And then the seals start opening. And the trumpets are sounded. And the bowls of wrath are poured out. And in 12, we have the dragon who rises up, who's Satan. And he wages war, not just on Jesus, but on the offspring. 
He wages war on us. He's the accuser of the brothers. And it says that we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, by the Gospel. And then, when we're overcoming and He's waging war, He goes to the sea. Remember, the sea's no more. Satan goes to the sea and he calls out the beast and he calls out the false prophet and the beast wages war on the saints and the beast, and this is one of the most terrifying verses for me, is allowed to conquer the saints. God in His sovereignty, and we won't understand this till heaven because it's a very unhuman thing for God to do. He allows the beast to have victory over the saints for a time. And in 17, there's the great prostitute who is drunk with the blood of the saints. And through the course of the seven seals, trumpets, and bowls of wrath, the rest of the world suffers a great deal. At one point, a third of all life being wiped out. Right now, there's seven point some billion people in the world Two billion of that gone. And then what happens in verse 4 is deeply divine and deeply paternal. As God heals only what God can. As you read Revelation, you think, how much more can we take? How much more can we take? And then finally, God brings an end to it in 20. And there's this sense of, you're almost, even as a reader, you're almost reeling from everything you've just read. And it says, God wipes every tear from their eyes. God has the power to say, Your new bodies don't have tear ducts. Stop crying. And we would. But He doesn't do that. He doesn't make our tears evaporate, He wipes them. That we're in heaven. That there's a sense of, we've been through a lot. And I know, I, I look out at this room and I, and I see brothers and sisters who have suffered a great deal already in different ways. And God starts heaven by touching our faces and wiping our tears. And He heals only what He can heal. And He does it as a Father. As a good Father who wipes our tears. And the leaves of the tree are applied to the nations for its healing. We see the full implications of Romans 8 where we get to cry out, Abba, Father. And there we'll cry, Abba, Father, as He wipes our tears. Isaiah, in chapter 25, I don't have this up on the screen, so, so just listen. 25, 8-9, Isaiah says it like this. And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples and the veil that is spread over all nations. And He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe their tears from all faces and the reproach of His people will be take, He will take away from all earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him. 
that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. So knowing that this is the destiny of the church, what do we do? I offer up just three simple things. One, we do what verse 9 talks about. We wait. We know the end. There are terrible things that have happened to us. There will be more terrible things that will happen to us. And to this world. And we wait. Knowing how it ends and knowing who God is. We wait for Him, knowing His heart. The second is we work. God has given us a task. In heaven, every ethne is represented. On earth right now, not every ethne knows Jesus. We have work to do. There are countries we need to go to. We need to send people to. That they may know there's a God who loves them and a Jesus who died on the cross for their sins. We need to go to our neighbors. We need to go to the 1040 window. We need to go on short-term trips to get this experience and to build this heart so that we're willing to go to the Middle East. And the last thing, if we look at the end of Revelation 22. Starting in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Let us join in the Spirit in saying, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, You are mighty. And You are our Father. And there are some days more than others where we just long for You to wipe the tears from our eyes. To take away the brokenness. And we can't wait for the day when death and pain are a memory that is quickly fading away. And we are fully united with you in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.